And we are in our fourth sermon in a series of six sermons in the book of Philippians. And as I've been saying, Paul, as pastor here at the end of his life in prison, is kind of writing a letter of final instruction. He doesn't know whether it will be a letter of final instruction and hopes that he can go and see the Philippians again, but it turns out being a letter of final instruction to them. And essentially, he uses that word finally twice in the letter. The first time he uses it, he says, finally rejoice in the Lord. And I think the whole book is about rejoicing in the Lord. And that doesn't mean having a tambourine and dancing all the time. That means resting in, being aware of, and celebrating the peace of God's presence as well. And certainly in Paul's particular situation, as he talks about joy in prison and joy to the Philippian congregation, he is using that breadth of what rejoicing in the Lord means. You know, with the election of the PNC, the Pastor Nominating Committee having happened now and that group beginning to meet, I am becoming more and more aware of, you know, this whole thing of my final words uh, to you as a <laughs> congregation, not because I'm dying, at least I, I don't think that will happen between now and February. I'm not expecting that to happen, but because that's when I retire. And I'm supposed to keep my nose out of this business of the pastor nominating committee, and I think I've been pretty good at that so far. Uh, uh, but what I can do is I can preach Philippians and invite you to consider the way in which Paul as pastor provides a pretty good set of metrics or markers of what pastoral ministry is all about. And Paul in this section that we're going to read today very much talks like a leader who is giving information and instruction to followers. But above all, the main instruction that Paul keeps giving throughout this letter is to strive, as we talked about last week, to have the mind of Christ and to essentially keep our eyes on Jesus. And so let me read the remainder of chapter 2 today, beginning in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or arguing, so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in which you shine like stars in the world. It is by your holding fast to the word of life that I can boast on the day of Christ that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a libation over the sacrifice of the offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, and in the same way, you also must be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I may be cheered by news of you. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. All of them are seeking their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But Timothy's worth, you know, how like a son with a father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I trust in the Lord 
that I will also come soon. Still, I think it's necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and co-worker and fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for all of you and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. He was indeed ill, that he's so ill that he nearly died, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, so that I would not have one sorrow after another. I am more eager to send him, therefore, in order that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. Welcome him, then, in the Lord, with all joy, and honor such people, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for those services that you could not give me. Let's pray. By your Holy Spirit, encourage us this day. Remind us of your work in us. Help us to take stock of that and to respond with thanksgiving and obedience. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I have talked about my work as pastor over the 41 years that I've been doing it, I have never been very comfortable with using expressions like my people or my flock to describe the congregation in which I serve. There's something about that, the prominence of that first person possessive pronoun. That's so wonderfully alliterative, isn't it? First person that possessive. You know, um, the word my. Uh, the, the suggestion somehow that within it that there's a, a hierarchy that isn't always healthy is one that develops from that kind of possessiveness or ownership, I think, of a congregation by a pastor. I remember as I was serving in the church in Pasadena, and I'm sure I've mentioned it enough to you to know that I, we were a mile from Monta Vista Grove Homes, which is a retirement facility for Presbyterian ministers. And so the place was just dripping with retired Presbyterian <laughs> ministers and their widows mainly. But it was an interesting place to serve in my 30s as I was beginning. I was also giving the, given the opportunity to contemplate my end and what would I be talking about in my 80s. And I remember one encounter with one of those retired ministers. I was at the Grove, as we called it, visiting one day. And he was a, a tall man, about maybe a tad taller than me, but, but almost my size. And he came up to me and he, he put his hand on my shoulder and kind of raised himself up even higher and said, so how is your little flock? And, you know, I didn't really know how to take it at the time. I wasn't taking it well, uh, <laughs> but the smile continued to be on my face. And it just has become kind of one of those core symbols of me of the, the problem with talking about my flock as a pastor. But what was especially interesting is that not only was my flock my flock, but it was my little flock. And I was a junior shepherd biding my time until I graduated to the big leagues. I don't think a congregation is a group of people that are supposed to be kept track of or rounded up 
or corralled. And for the time being, that's not the way I saw my work with my little flock, to be perfectly honest, as he said that to me. And similarly, I, I haven't been too impressed which the titles of business have come in to describe what pastors do and where we're supposed to be attending leadership classes and studying concepts from Harvard Business School and see ourselves as the CEO or as the, the chief communicator for the congregation, the chief spokesperson for an organization. I'm not impressed with those either, that although they have given us good handles on organizational development and all of those kinds of things, I think the hierarchy of what is communicated by both the flock the my people expression and the, the identity of the pastor as a, as a CEO of some sort, the hierarchy that is communicated by that is something that doesn't ring true with what Paul tells us in the very book of Philippians that we're studying about how we're all supposed to be keeping our eyes on Jesus. And what we're supposed to pay special note to is the way in which he did not count equality with God, that is his divine prerogative as something to rule over people and exploit in some way, but chose to instead to empty himself of that and become a servant. So in light of this, I'm always a little bit uncomfortable and I squirm a bit when I read two lines in the book of Philippians, because here's Paul telling us, be like Jesus, empty yourself. And then saying things like, just as you have always obeyed me in verse 12 of chapter 2, or in verse 9 of chapter 4, keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. So I kind of go, ooh. <laughs> that doesn't fit with everything else you're saying. But as is always with biblical interpretation, context is the primary word to keep in mind. And it's not Paul saying here, now that I can't be with you, keep doing what I have always told you to do. And it's the next line after that phrase in verse 12 that makes it clear to us that obedience to himself is not primarily what Paul is asking of the Philippians. But instead, let me read that text again. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's not stick to my vision, make sure that everyone understands the mission statement as I have written it and therefore abide by it, or execute my plan for the business, it's work out your salvation. Embark on your journey. Move out in light of the love and the light of Jesus Christ. Work out your salvation, for God is at work in you. There's something happening between you and God that the pastor doesn't mediate. It's just happening, friends, so pay attention to it. And what Paul is saying is, pay attention to it. Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God is at work in you. 
Pay attention to what God is doing. Stay the course of the journey, always looking for the ways that God is at work in you and among you. And essentially what Paul is saying when he says work out your own salvation, he's not saying work hard to be a better rule follower. I mean, Jesus makes that clear when in our passage in the opening sentences, actually in the call to confession today from the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the best rule followers, the most obedient people, the most religious people, but he says, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven because your righteousness is about relationship with the God who is transforming you. Stay vigilant to that transforming work that God is doing in you and grow into the mind of Christ that you are to take on as one of his followers, or as Paul says in other places, grow up into the one who is your head. Paul uses in this text of Philippians two really important concepts that we have to keep in mind. And and one is his celebration of the way that the Philippians had a partnership in the gospel with him. And that word partnership is the word koinonia. It's the word common life together. It's the word that's a highly relational word that we're all participating in, in this same relationship with Jesus Christ that God in Christ is at work in all of us, and so let each of us pay attention to and look for the signs of that work and and participate in that work of God. Paul clearly, clearly has a sense of authority among the people at, at Philippi, but that sense of authority grows out of a relationship of trust. They're going to listen to what he has to say. They're going to abide by the suggestions that he gives. They're going to give those things weight. But that's because that authority that has come to him based on relationship. When you look at someone and see that they are growing into the mind of Christ, it's just a little easier to listen to them. You know, Paul goes on here to talk about what some instructions, you know, he says, you know, I'd really love to send you Timothy, but I'm not going to because I need him here. So maybe both of us will come, maybe he'll just come. And he's not saying, but I'll send you Epaphroditus, he's okay. You know, uh, he's saying Epaphroditus who came to him with the letter and brought the gift from the Philippians to him when he was in prison is now being sent back after his recuperation to deliver this letter to them. He bought a gift from Philippi to Paul, and now he's taking back Paul's thank you note, essentially. He's essentially saying, here's how I'm going to deploy the staff, because I want to encourage you. But what gives Paul authority is the extent to which he reflects the mind of Christ. And what makes him listen to him is that they hear the words of Jesus, and that he's pointing not to himself, but to Christ. Ultimately, we all have to work out our own salvation. We have to figure out what following Jesus is going to look like for us. We have to determine what life is going to look like and what is it going to mean to follow Jesus in the place and time that I currently find myself. 
In essence, what Paul is saying in this interesting invitation to the Philippians to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling is look for the light, stand in it, and then go reflect that light to your world. I want to give you an image to consider that I think is a, a great image of the Christian in the world who is seeking to be in the light and, and reflect the light. When we moved to the Northwest back in 1995, I, I learned about madrona trees. I didn't know what they were. I thought they were magnolia trees because they had a leaf that looked like a magnolia tree. In fact, I've heard recently that magnolia is named magnolia because the settlers thought that the madrona trees were magnolia trees. Uh, but it's, you know, it's that broad leaf and, and it has bark that reminded me almost of bark of a manzanita tree in the chaparral in Southern California because it's kind of peeling off and it's really smooth underneath. And it, they're just beautiful trees. But the one thing that's fascinating about madronas is that they grow in and among these massive fir trees and they grow on the coast and they grow closer to the coast because they have this ability to kind of wend their way around the firs <laughs> and reach to the light. You know, we have one in our backyard that volunteered behind one of our Douglas fir trees and here's the fir tree. And here's the madrona, and the madrona kind of grows like this, and then it goes like this. <laughs> Sorry for those of you who are listening on a recording later, you can't see my hands. But um, anyway, it just reaches toward the light. It's an amazing adaptation that it has, and it's such a quiet thing, and you might not even notice it, but it's the way that it kind of dwells among its neighbors, and yet is also quite assertive with its own presence even being dwarfed by those other trees. The church or our walk as disciples is about finding and growing in the light and growing toward the light, finding a way to thrive in the, the midst of an environment that can appear to be quite less than hospitable. Wendell Berry has that great line in one of his tree poems, and he has a lot of poems about trees, believe me, but he says, a tree forms itself in answer to its place and toward the light. And I love that, that notion, put down roots and stretch toward the light wherever you are. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's very good pastoral advice. And if I may be so bold, look for somebody who gives this advice. Who directs your attention to the light and trusts the light of God to do what only it can do. And that is to grow the mind of Christ in you and so enable you to reflect those thoughts and that light in our world. Let's pray. We give thanks that you keep us in your care, that you are at work in us. So God, help us to pay attention to that work 
and so find the life abundant that you have promised us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.